Hello, class. How's everybody tonight? Before we get into the episode, I have a couple preliminary things to address. First of all, I hope that everybody's had a chance to see the video I made with my collaborator, Alex of Murderous Minds. It's about Lonnie Franklin, the Grim Sleeper, and the video is actually on a channel called Crime Reel on YouTube. And if you haven't seen it yet or you don't know where to find it, I'll have the link in my show notes. And we're actually working on another project together. I'm writing the script and he's going to make the video and that'll probably be out in a couple weeks. But as you probably figured out, this is going to be a really big case. So I'm figuring, you know me, at least three episodes. And it is, of course, The Moore's Murders with Ian Brady and Myra Henley. And this is an English case that happened in the 60s. And if you're not familiar with it, I'll give you a real brief overview and then I'll tell you how we're going to discuss it. Break down the segments into which we're going to talk about the case. So, the series of murders called the Moore's Murders happened in England from 1963 to 1965. There were five victims, ages 10 to 17, and the perpetrators were Ian Brady and Myra Henley. They were boyfriend and girlfriend, and there's been... A number of books written about them, a whole bunch of documentaries, a whole bunch of podcasts have covered them, and I listened to most of the podcasts that are out there, I think, for a couple reasons. I like to make sure that I don't copy off of anybody, you know, tell the story in the exact same way, but I don't use other podcasts as sources. If I hear a fact on another podcast. I'll take note of it. I'll think, okay, that's interesting. I have to check it out to see if I can verify that. If I can't find it somewhere else, then I don't use it. So they're not really sources. All the actual sources I use are, as always, in the show notes. But in this case, I used a couple main sources. There were about three main books that I relied on. And In these books, the killers themselves hold the author's things about their lives and about the crimes. And we're going to find that when we talk about the actual murders, Ian's versions of what happened and Myra's versions are pretty different. So a lot of times you're going to hear me say, according to Ian or according to Myra, and They're both liars, honestly, and you're going to find that, like most criminals, both of their versions are pretty self-serving. So I'll tell you the source, like Myra told this person in a letter, or Ian told this psychiatrist this, or whatever, and you you can make up your own mind as far as what you think is true. And in this story, there's a lot of... Authors and philosophers mentioned. Not a lot, but some. But they are important because these people influenced the killers and the murders. So I'm going to briefly discuss some of these authors and philosophers 
so that we can get a pretty good understanding of what was going on, what they were thinking, what their purpose was. As I'm sure you know, is usually my point with this, is trying to figure out why people do or did what they did. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start off with Ian's life, biography of him, and this is going to be biographical facts and statements he's made to various psychiatrists and authors, other people. Then we're going to talk about Myra's life, and we're going to use the same types of sources, things that she said. Then we're going to get into the actual murders. There's five of them. We're going to start with when they met, what they were like as a couple. And if you haven't figured out Ian was the influencer, you know what I say if there's a couple that's involved in crime, you always have a dominant and a follower. Ian was the leader. It's not to say that Myra was blameless, but he was the instigator. So I want to take you through their relationship and see how he kind of indoctrinated her into his way of thinking and how he kind of molded her like a piece of clay into the perfect partner, the perfect killing partner. And then we'll discuss each of the five murders and the victims. Sadly, there's not a whole lot of information available about victims. There's even fewer pictures of them, which is very sad. And whatever pictures I could find, I have on my social media, and I hope you'll look at them. Then there, what happens after their arrest, the trial, and there's actually a really long part that I call aftermath, and it's the time that they're in prison. And it's not like they go to prison and then they die. There's a whole lot that happens while they're in prison that happens in the case, in their lives, some things that give us more understanding of them and perhaps why they did this. And then, of course, psychology. And one thing I want to stress, I think I have a few British listeners, or at least according to my stats, I do. So give me holler, English mates or British mates. This case was huge in Britain and I'm trying to think of something comparable for American listeners. Maybe like the Oklahoma City bombing, Ted Bundy, somebody who's really notorious, an event that's really captured the, I don't know if fascination is the right word, but these two were some of the UK's most reviled criminals. And Myra especially, she was actually billed as Britain's most evil woman. And it's interesting that she's singled out for more, it seems anyway, more uh, hate by people. And even even in history. And we're going to go into the whys of that in, in psychology. So I just want to give everybody a framework of when this happened, where this happened, and what effect this had on the whole country. And since this is a, well, to me, foreign and older case, there's a lot of maybe terminology and ideas. To be honest, when I was researching this, I came across some terms and things that I had to look up because I'm like, what? What's that? What does 
what does this mean? I never heard of that. So anytime we come across something like that, I'll make sure to explain to everybody what exactly that means so that everybody's on the same page. So is everybody ready? We're going to start off with Ian and his biography and his life. For some reason, there's a whole lot of misinformation and myths about Ian. And it seems like the same stories. I don't know where they came from, but I, I keep seeing them again and again. So I hope to set the record straight. The main source of information on Ian's life I used was a book by Dr. Alan Keatley or Kitely. And he spent a lot of time talking to Ian and corresponding with him. So let's start out with some geography. Ian was born in Glasgow, which is the most populous city in Scotland. It is home to Cineworld, which is the world's tallest cinema. And people from Glasgow are famous for their distinctive dialect, like people from Pittsburgh, I guess. His mother was Margaret, or Peggy Stort. She was a single mother, which in those days was very unusual. And she was 28 when she had Ian. He was born on January 2nd of 1938 at 12.40 p.m. at Rotten Row Maternity Hospital in Glasgow. And his name was Ian Duncan Stort. His dad's name is not on his birth certificate. And supposedly, he was a newspaper reporter that left his mother three months before Ian was born. So Ian would never know his dad or anything about him. Can you imagine being a single mother in 1938? Well, yeah, it was hard on Peggy. She worked as a waitress in a tea room in a hotel. And what she did was she put an ad in the window of a newsagent's shop. And it, it said pretty much that she had a baby that she wanted to give up for adoption. So when he was just a couple months old, he was adopted by a really nice couple named Mary and John Sloan. And they already had three kids, Robert, Jean, and May. And they would go on to have a baby named John after they adopted Ian. Ian's first words were supposedly da and ma, which most Scottish kids call their dad and mom. And when he was a baby, he got a bad case of the measles, which left his eyes messed up somehow. And for the rest of his life, he was sensitive to light, and he would always wear dark glasses. You see a lot of pictures of him wearing dark glasses, and that's why. His natural mother, Peggy, would come and see him whenever she could, usually on the weekends. And his foster parents, or adoptive parents, called her Aunt Peggy. But Ian said that he just knew somehow that that was really his mother. In 1939, England went to war with Germany in what would be World War II. And Ian and his family were affected by this because the part of the city they lived in, the Gorbals, was a, a popular target for air bombs because it was between an ironworks and the docks on the Clyde River. 
and Ian and his siblings grew up hearing air raid sirens and having to go hide out in shelters to keep them safe from the bombs that would come from planes. And he would later say that when he lived with the Sloans, this was like the happiest time of his life. And he would write in a letter, quote, Those excursions home to the Gorbals contrived to cast a wholesome influence over me when nothing else could. Myra often told me that I was a changed man whenever I returned to Alaska. I was energetic, relaxed, and happier, end quote. On his first day of kindergarten, he said, quote, As young as I was, on that first day, I sensed that knowledge was power. I felt it, end quote. And we're going to see that for the whole rest of his life. He's going to have this fascination with books and learning and education. And most of what he knows about stuff, which is, is quite impressive, actually, is all from reading books. He could actually read before he started school, and he started with comic books, probably like a lot of kids in those days. He was said to have an encyclopedic knowledge of movies, which he went to often in those days. This was before Blockbuster and Netflix and everything. You actually had to go to a movie theater, and they called it the cinema, and they would play movies on a screen. The first ever movie he saw was The Road to Morocco with Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. And he said, quote, I was never a loner, even in my youngest days. Whatever it takes to be a loner, I can't see what's wrong with being that way. Loners probably experience life at a more profound level than the self-consciously gregarious who know nothing of individuality or who lack the courage to go their own way, end quote. In a lot of sources, this is another popular myth about him, a lot of places will say that he was alone or that he was ostracized, that he was bullied, and none of that is true. If anything, he was a bully. Whenever he would have a group of friends, wherever he went, he somehow was always like a leader. You know, how among a group or a gang or whatever, there's always somebody that's either officially or unofficially in charge, the one with the most dominant personality. Well, that was always him. Another couple of stories I kept hearing about him was that he tortured animals as a kid, and this is definitely not true. He really loved animals, and we'll see a couple examples of that. And there's a story that him and his friends tied another kid to a, I guess, like a stake, and they supposedly burned him or we're going to burn him, you know, like they burn witches. Well, that's not true either. When he was real young, he was actually religious. He liked to pray. He loved Christmas and he liked to go out and play with his friends in the street. They played games like White Horse, Tic Tac, which I have no idea what those are. And when he was little, he had, a, uh, this will be like his first experience with the death. They played this game called Catching a Hudgy, and what the kids would do, a van or a truck would drive past, and they would jump up on it and try to hold on to it, either by the spare tire or whatever, and one boy jumped up on the truck, but he fell off, fell like right on the road, and another truck came by and rolled over him, 
And when the truck left, there was nothing left of this kid but a brown shoe in the road filled with blood. And Ian said that years later, when he cut the throat of one of his victims and saw the blood, that he kind of flashed back to this. When he was real young, before he became like a really big time thief, he one time took some money from his mother's purse and then he felt real ashamed of himself. So he wrapped up some coins and hid them in a mouse hole. I really thought mouse holes were only in cartoons. I didn't know that they were an actual thing. But anyway, he did this. And one of the most, I guess, maybe profound things that happened to him as a kid or another experience that he had with the death was he was walking home from school and he saw a Clydesdale horse on the street. You know, they had, in those days, they had horses that carried stuff. And the horse had apparently tripped on the cobblestone street and broke his leg or, or whatever. And he said the horse was lying there looking at him with this horrible expression of pain and fear. And it, it like really got to Ian. And he said he knew that they were going to kill the horse. So he got really, really upset and ran home crying, which is probably what I would do too. Just as an interesting side, we're going to get a little bit more into this book later. I told you we were going to talk about some books. But his favorite author, who really had a, a big influence on his life and what he thought about stuff, was Fyodor Dostoevsky, a Russian author. Probably his most famous work is Crime and Punishment. And in this book, there's actually a scene in which a horse dies. And it, it's supposedly real similar to what Ian experienced. And in the margin of his book, Crime and Punishment, he wrote there, quote, crystallized immorality of violence, almost too painful to read, end quote. And yeah, Ian was very pretentious. When he talked or wrote, his philosophy was why use a simple word if you can use a big, long, multi-syllable word. So that's the way he talks and writes. When he was seven, the war ended with what they call VE Day or Victory in Europe. And he remember, remembered the whole country, the whole neighborhood. Everybody was happy and celebrating. When he wasn't playing games or watching movies at the cinema, he played the piano. He went to the zoo a lot, and this was back in the days when they had animals in cages, which is a horrible thought now, but he remembers seeing a tiger in a cage, and he felt really bad for this poor tiger all cooped up in the cage, and he would stand there and watch the tiger and just get really upset about it. And this is another, I guess you would call it a life-changing experience, or maybe even like a I would call it a spiritual or almost like a religious conversion type of thing. He was eight and his family was on summer vacation or as they say, holiday. They were at Loch Lomond in Scotland, which Loch is Scottish for Lake. And he says, quote, leaving the family to their own pleasures, I clambered up through the dense trees for a better view of the loch and the mountains in the distance. I was shattered by the sense of vastness. It was as though I had suddenly stepped through an invisible barrier and had arrived in a different dimension. I was dizzy and breathless, gulping for air. My body felt light. This new sense of reality and freedom was intoxicating. 
end quote. And for a kid who his whole life, which of course is not very long yet, he's only eight, he's used to a crowded house in a slum, and all of a sudden he gets out in nature and sees mountains and lakes. I imagine that would be kind of powerful. But this is going to be really important for a number of reasons. There was another place that he liked to go to called Tobermory, and it was like a, a wilderness area. And this is his description of the way he felt when he was there. Quote, I was experiencing the intensity of pure willpower, expanding my heart and mind. I knew that this was the real world. This was real power. The moral and legal restrictions of conventional reality were discarded like a ridiculously small item of clothing that had been outgrown. This was what it meant to savor absolute freedom to see through the classifications projected by the mind onto the real world, a world that cares nothing for humanity's concerns for its own importance, end quote. This is a theme that he's going to keep repeating. And notice how I stress the word power. In case you haven't figured out, Ian was a psychopath, and we know what they crave, power and control. And we're going to see throughout his life that in whatever he did, he was always trying to get power and control in some way. His family got a new house in a town or part of town called Pollock on Temple Land Road. And this was supposedly a nicer house than what they had come from. He made new friends and he became the unofficial leader of a gang of about six. He went through puberty early at like 11, which is, I would say, quite early. And he had his first, I guess you could call it, girlfriend at this age. And he discovered that he liked to kiss girls violently, like, I guess, kind of gnash with his teeth so violently that both of their mouths would bleed. And this is something that he would keep doing into adulthood. So that's kind of bizarre. And then he started, I don't know if you can use the term going out with at the age of 11 or 12, but I guess started a relationship with a girl named Evelyn Grant. And he, I guess, signaled his interest in her by tugging on her pigtails. And he said, this is important, quote, once during some horseplay, I gave her a bite as a barbaric token for a ring, end quote. And we're going to hear later how he would do this with Myra during sex. Like, I don't mean like sucker bites or hickeys or whatever you call them. I mean like bites as in would leave marks and draw blood. So it's it's interesting to see how throughout his life there's always this undercurrent of violence and aggression. And it even comes out when he's supposedly having sex or kissing girls or doing things that, that aren't supposed to be violent. He was a good student back then. He got good grades. I don't really know how it works in Britain, but they have these exams or tests that you take. And I don't know, you go on to different levels. And his grades were good enough to get him into something called Shawlands Academy, which was a school for, I guess, kids with good grades. We're starting to see at this young age a either a mistrust or a dislike of people which is going to be a big thing in his life. In so many ways, Ian was like a paradox, just a conundrum. And in one way was he would always, every, anywhere he went, he would easily make friends. 
He could be very friendly and sociable. And it seems like wherever he moved to, he would form like a gang or a group of friends. So he never had any trouble making friends or getting along with people, but he didn't like people. So that's um, a little bit confusing. But again, like any good psychopath, he liked people for what he could get from them, what he could use them for. And as we're going to see throughout his life, he's very good at figuring out exactly what use somebody will be to him and then exploiting this. In 1950, his mom, Peggy, moved to Manchester, which is going to play a big part in the story later. And she married a dude named Patrick Brady. Ian, at this time, he'll go through three last names in his life. He was born Stuart, and then he took the name Sloan after his foster family, and he'll eventually take the name Brady. But at this time, he was Ian Sloan, and his nickname was Sloney. He would later say that he tended to attract kids that were looking for excitement, and he was really good at compartmentalizing the different parts of his lives. Like, for example... The original old gang, if you want to call it that, from the Gorbals, was kind of wild. Like, I guess you would call them bad kids. And they didn't get along with the kids that were around his new neighborhood. I guess you would call them maybe a little bit better off in the socioeconomic sense. And they were actually afraid of the other kids. But Ian got along fine with both groups. He was starting to get bored with school. And probably around this age that he's going to start a hobby that will be a lifelong interest, and that is stealing things. It started when he and some other friends took some money from the teacher's drawer at school. They would take food from a bakery. And regarding this type of behavior, he said, quote, Why did it feel good to be bad? And so from a tiny seed nurtured in so oblique a manner, a vine of scarlet and black would take deep root and unobstructedly thrive in the shadows until, in the slow turn of the years, it grew to hideous proportions, letting the priceless blooms of humanity shrivel in its shade, end quote. And yes, he's being pretentious, and he really sounds a lot like Poe, but in case you didn't understand that, he's kind of making a metaphor, saying... He had so much fun doing bad things, which he definitely did. He started out with stealing money from a teacher's drawer and graduated with serial murder of children. So I'd say he, he definitely escalated in that behavior. And he said at first it was just a little idea or a little bit of a fun thing being bad was. And then it just grew and grew until it was so hideous in his own words that it affected humanity. His first break-in was when he was nine and it was a ground floor tenement apartment. He went in the apartment, he opened a drawer of cigarettes and then he shut it and ran out. I guess he just lost his nerve so he, he didn't take anything from there. He said that his early break-ins were just for excitement or out of resentment towards I guess the people who he was victimizing or towards authority. He said, quote, We broke into a school purely on a whim. We had no intention of stealing anything. End quote. He had bunnies, 
and he had a cocker spaniel named Sheila who he really loved and unfortunately Sheila got distemper and this really affected him we're going to see he took this very very hard and I've had a lot of dogs who've died and I take it really hard and grieve for a long time but this kind of changed him in a way and I'll read you a quote from him because he's better at explaining it. And I've taken some liberties with this quote. He goes on and on and on. And I just kind of cut it to take out the extraneous parts. But he says, quote, Atavistically, I whisper desperate prayers, promising everything I could think of if Sheila were allowed to live. End quote. So he, he was out at school or something. He came home, found that Sheila had died. And he walked around the streets crying for a long time. He said, quote, A change was taking place in me. My lips began to curl with contempt. I could sense cold fury in my stomach. I shouted obscenities into the night. I was consumed by a foaming, mad fury. It was my first taste of nihilism. It was succulent. There was an energy and power I had never known before. A spiritual ecstasy. I was intoxicated. I felt omnipotent. I was aware of my consciousness evolving at uncontrolled speed. Was this madness? Was this a revelation of something beyond life? If it was, I wanted to embrace it, immerse myself in it, and succumb to its intoxicating new vistas. This death was better than life. This was authentic freedom. I was free, unrestricted by false beliefs, and was now looking beyond small-minded laws, and localized, transient moral codes. Everything fell into place once she realized that God was a projection, a human fantasy in the brain, when we cannot face the horrific prospect of a meaningless, purposeless universe. Sheila was dead. Everything in the world will die. My grief was mollified now that I knew I too would die like Sheila. There were no limits now. I walked back towards Temple Land Road, reborn, end quote. And through this pretentious little speech, there's a, a lot in there. He mentions nihilism. That is the philosophy, basically, that there's no purpose in life. Life is meaningless. And he, we're going to see he really embraces this philosophy. And notice how he mentions, he repeatedly mentions in, in his writings and what he says about this theme of humans being trapped or pen in or restricted by laws and morality. And in his opinion, in his belief, to be free would be to basically be unaccountable to anything. Laws, ethics, morality, anything. And we'll talk about this a little bit later in, in more detail, but he really had this thing where he had this like personal moral code of his, and he would read stuff by writers and philosophers like Dostoevsky, and he would kind of take their philosophies or beliefs and bend them to fit his own beliefs or, or code, moral code, and he would then use these books and writings to justify what he wanted to do. And he was, again, like a psychopath. He was real good at this, at justifying his behavior. So this little gang that he had was really getting into break-ins. At one point, they were doing like three a night. And 
he said that any money he got from these endeavors, he would spend on his girlfriend, Evelyn. And his parents knew nothing about this. They wanted him to join the Boys Brigade, which is, I guess, like the Scouts. And he refused. He said that he didn't like uniformed organizations in their, quote, puerile regimentation, unquote. So let's take a break from talking about Ian and talk about something cute, bark box. Nathan got his bark box today, and it was really cute. This month's theme is ice cream, and he got an ice cream cone and looks like a scoop of ice cream and something else. I don't know. He took it out of my hand so fast. I didn't get a chance to see it, but BarkBox is so cute. It It's actually customizable by, by how big your dog is, so you can get it for big dogs. I get the little dog one for Nathan. Even though he's a fat ass, he's still Pugs are still technically toy breeds, and he has a little mouth, so he likes the smaller toys. And we get free toys and no treats because he has a uh, like a food allergy. But the original packaging comes with two toys, two sticks, and two bags of treats. But I emailed the company, and they're very friendly and nice and they know what your dog's name is. They're like, hi, Debbie and Nathan. You know, this is John and Spot or whatever. And you tell them what you need. And they're very nice and helpful. And if you look in my show notes and follow the link to BarkBox, you can get a free month. So it's definitely worth it. Your dog will love it. Now, we're going to talk about Ian's first run-in with the police. Apparently, another student at the academy told the police on this gang that Ian belonged to. So the police came to his house one night and hauled him away, and all of the gang appeared in what was called children's court. And from what I read, this children's court thing is only in Scotland. I don't know if they still have it or not. But somehow they knew that by they, I mean like the judge or whoever was in charge, they knew Ian was like the leader or instigator, and they were officially admonished. That was the end of that. At some point around this time, Ian realized that he was bisexual. And interestingly, Mara was too. And it's theorized that He had a stronger attraction to men than women. And once we get into more of his relationship with Myra, I think that's probably true. It doesn't really matter in the end, but I I tend to think that way. After the gang had been admonished in court, they, of course, resumed their burglaries or break-ins. But they were just a little bit more careful and secretive about it. Okay, so now Ian's about 13, and this is the first time that this is introduced, and usually I would mention this in psychology, but it certainly appears to me like he had seasonal affective disorder. That's when you get depressed in the fall and winter. A lot of people have that, and he says, quote, the unobtrusive change from late summer to early autumn was always accompanied by a change in me. 
it was unfailingly a change for the worse, end quote. He called it autumn fugue, and there were would-be two psychiatrists later when he was in prison that <laughs> diagnosed him with, and I'm, I'm thinking this is an old-fashioned term, autumnal madness. And like I said today, I think that will be called seasonal affective disorder. It's funny how these psychiatric terms in the names of conditions that I'm familiar with back in the day were called like bizarre things. So this is very significant here. So pay attention. I told you that somebody ratted them out to the police. Well, there was a boy in school who everybody thought was the one who told. And there was a time when Ian found himself alone with this kid in the locker room. I don't know what they were doing. It doesn't matter. But they were in the locker room. It was just this kid and Ian. So for whatever reason, we don't know, the kid started to cry. And what do you think Ian did? Well, according to him, he, the boy, quote, melted before me like a girl as I lowered him to the dirty floor and had him roughly devoid of feeling or affection, end quote. So he raped this kid, and he's 13 years old. So um, he's starting violent sexual behavior early. And one night at midnight, the police come knocking at the door again, and apparently one of the gang stole a razor, and somebody, their parents or whatever, found it. And then this kid, they probably asked, okay, who else is in this gang? And the, the kid told, so they went around and, and hauled them all in again. So all these boys appear before sheriff's court. And Ian got two years of probation, and he was put on a curfew. Needless to say, his parents, the Sloans, were not very pleased with this. Because they were a good law-abiding family. They didn't do shit like this. His first ever job was on Saturday mornings as a delivery boy at a butcher's shop. And not only did he like having money, but remember, Ian's a sneaky little bastard, and we're starting to get a handle on how he thinks and how he turns situations to his advantage. While he was walking around the neighborhood delivering I guess it would be meat. He was scouting out the houses for ones that he thought would be good to break into. So he was getting intelligence while he's doing this job. While he was delivering meat, he met a girl, just this random girl, answered the door. And him and this girl, and her name's not mentioned, would meet up on a regular basis and have sex in a park. Again, he's... 13. But he's still seeing this Evelyn girl, but he heard that another boy liked her, so he's annoyed at that. It doesn't matter that he's out screwing around, but he's mad because somebody else likes Evelyn. And around this time, he gets tired of school. And he said that school was a, quote, sausage machine education. I don't really get the analogy there. But he means, I know what he means. And he said he decided that from then on, he would be better off educating himself, which is what he did. And this is real interesting. 
I think it's important in terms of his behavior and why he acted how he did. He said that sometimes he experienced what he called a black light, and it was like a heightened perception. He said, quote, in times of danger and test of will, all my senses would be super normal. Everything outlined as though by needle sharp electricity, end quote. And he said one time he was walking with two of his friends and some other kid pushed one of his friends and then they get into a fight, you know, like stupid little kids do. And Ian was carrying what's called a kosh, and apparently that's like a club or a baton, some kind of weapon anyway. So he smacked this other boy in the face with this thing, and he said, quote, I can still remember how black and oily the blood looked in the dimmed light. Suddenly my vision was transformed. Everything was immediately vivid and sharp, as though illuminated by liquid electricity. Everyone seemed to be moving in slow motion. It was pure exhilaration for me, end quote. And he later was reflecting. He's like, was that an optical illusion? You know, what exactly was that? But whatever it was, it excited and fascinated him, and he wanted it to happen again. And we're going to see how... When he experiences violence, he gets this black light or this, like, excitement. And whatever that is that's going on is a very big part of why he chooses to live a life filled with violence. So now he's 15, and his relationship, if you want to call it that, with Evelyn finally ended when he said he was out with his gang, just hanging around or whatever, and she walked by. And one of the kids threw a stone, not on purpose, but it, it hit her like in the ankle by accident. And he said, quote, I shall never forget her reproachful look. I remember it with shame, end quote. And it kind of sounds like he felt bad or he felt guilty, which we're gonna, we saw the incident with the horse and with Sheila, his dog, how he has like a genuine love for Sheila and was really upset when she died. And that's kind of odd for a psychopath because they're supposedly don't really feel love. They just like go through the motions of it. But there are a few examples in his life where he seems to have feelings or affection or regret or remorse, but they are very few. He got another job and this is after he leaves school. He's 15 now. He got a job on the railroad cleaning grease from the steam engines, which sounds incredibly boring. He was fired a few weeks later after somebody did a check and discovered that he had a police record. Now, this part coming up is extremely significant, and it may actually be the key behind what's wrong with him and why he decided to kill people. So listen up. And there's a quote in here. It's pretty long, but it is important. So one day it's raining. I think it rains a lot in Scotland, but it was raining. And what happened to him was so significant that when he came home, he actually wrote it all down. He was going to a job interview and he was on his bike. And he says, quote, as I approached the Paisley Road, I felt a strange change coming over me. 
My body felt light, and I felt a little dizzy. I was becoming enveloped by some kind of bright radiance. The buildings, vehicles, and people around me seemed not to belong to my world anymore. I managed to stop the bike and slumped against a shop window. It was dim in these early stages. Then it slowly grew more intense. There was a green radiation, beautiful and warm. I entered willingly into the green manifestation, immersing my whole being in the swirling, warm cloud. There was something waiting within it, as yet indistinct, seen in brief glimpses through the green mist as a more substantial, fluctuating formation. Sounds were coming from its center, as though from a great distance or depth, hollow and not yet identifiable as a familiar language. Features formed slowly in the shimmering green radiance, and then came the realization I was in the presence of death itself. I was witnessing it and hearing its sounds. I felt helpless. I experienced total panic. Was I dying or already dead? The voice assured me I was neither. I had not spoken a word. Death had read my thoughts and answered immediately. My excitement began to temper fear. Was I insane? No. What did it want? I would learn. Would it help or harm me? It would help. Why me? I would know. How? I would see. I was looking at a radically changed world, a world vibrant and charged with internal contradictions, a world in which moral and ethical interpretations of life seemed absolutely stultifying and irrelevant, end quote. So, notice the emphasis again on he's seeing something, a world with no moral and ethical ramifications, and of course that's attractive to him. Now, later on in his life, he would be di diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and I can only take a guess. I don't know any better, of course, but that sounds a lot to me like a hallucination. So he got home, and he said he looked at his mother to see if she noticed the change in him, because he, he said after this experience or whatever, he felt different. He felt like a changed person. And he told his mom that he had experienced some dizziness and a warm, attractive green thing. So, well, of course, mom is worried and she asked questions to which she gave vague replies. And then he wrote, why did Ma seem so troubled? Well, duh, because her kid came in and said he was seeing weird green shit and was dizzy. Um, wouldn't you be concerned if your kid said that they saw that? I would hope so. He later compared this experience to a religious conversion. You know how some people say they saw a vision, they saw like Jesus or whatever it is that they see. He said, quote, death would be my omnipresent guide and friend, end quote. That does not sound healthy. You don't have to be a shrink to figure that out. And I see a few mentions. Remember I told you about so many podcasts I listened to and even books had so many facts that were wrong. And a lot of them had that this occurred, that he saw this face of death thing. But some said that whenever he killed people, he was making sacrifices to this thing. And that is definitely not true. So if you if you happen to be thinking that, stop thinking that because that's not true. 
Later on, somebody asked Myra if she knew about this. She said that she didn't. Like I said, they both lie, so now he gets another job. He doesn't keep jobs very long, if, if in case you've uh, noticed. This one was as an apprentice in the Harland and Wolf shipyard. And he liked the camaraderie of the workers there, but he didn't like the noise of the shipyard, which I can't blame him there. And just as an interesting aside, this shipyard happened to be famous because it built most of the liners for the White Star Line, including the Titanic. So I thought that was a cool fact. After work, of course, he would get together with his gang and break into houses it makes me wonder, we know how Ian turned out. I wonder what happened to all these other kids in this gang that were so into crime so young. Like, did they become murderers and stuff? I'd be interested to find out, just out of curiosity. So he starts carrying a switchblade, and he said he found himself pulling it out a lot. And one time, I guess he was fighting, which he seems to do a lot of that also. And he cut another boy's shoulder. So it's not going to be too long before somebody tattles on the gang again. If you're breaking into places and doing burglaries as much as they were, that's kind of inevitable. He was held in a jail cell on nine counts of burglary. Because he was only 15, they put him in a remand home in St. Vincent Street. But he got out soon. And in December of 1954, he went to Glasgow Sheriff's Court. He got more probation, but on the condition that he leave the area and move in with his mother, who's now in Manchester. So they're pretty much like, get the fuck out of here. We're tired of dealing with you. Beat it. So he takes the train down to Manchester, and he's said to feel really depressed and resentment towards authority because, of course, he loves his natural mom, but he really loved the Sloans. That's like, at this point, he's only 15. This is the only family he's ever known. So now we're going to introduce the second major city of this story, Manchester. And this is a major city in northwest England. It's a very industrial city, and it bills itself as the world's first industrial city. It's also known for soccer, or they call it football there. It has museums, bars, restaurants, a whole bunch of, like, interesting, fun stuff to do. And they have something called Curry Mall. And what that is, it's a street with over 70 international restaurants on it. So his mom, Peggy, and stepdad, Patrick Brady, are waiting for him at the train station. And Ian takes the name Brady after his stepdad. I don't know if he, like, officially adopted him or what, but now he's on his third name, and that'll be the one he keeps for the rest of his life. And he says the reason he took his name was... Again, always sneaky, mainly to keep the Manchester police from finding out his police record from Glasgow. And, of course, he makes friends, and he seems to attract the bad crowd, if you want to call them that. His nickname was Mac. I have no idea why. Ian Brady. Mac. They're not even similar. I, I, give, I don't know. So 
He started around this time to drink an awful lot, and he would end up being an alcoholic. One time, he's in a pub with his friends, and some argument broke out between his friends and another group of, of guys. You know how dudes are when they drink? They argue, and, you know, everybody wants to be an asshole. So one of the guys stood up and walked, like, to the bathroom or something. And Ian said, quote, everything around me was suddenly electric sharp and all my senses were heightened with black light. I grabbed a large empty bottle from a pile of crates and broke it on his head. I raised my hand with the broken neck of the bottle to attack one of his friends. It was only an old drunk. I let the glass drop to the floor and felt a stinging sensation in my cheek, blood, end quote. I kind of paraphrased that because you know how he, well, maybe you don't, but when he talks, he just goes on and on, and, and one quote will take up like a whole page. So I've been like abridging the quotes of his. Well, his friends thought this was a riot, and he said, quote, death had enticed me into pointless danger, end quote. And there was that black light thing again, where he experiences this, I don't know what, some kind of state of mind, and then he feels like acting out or doing something violent. So around this time, he developed a new hobby that would be very important later on in the murder, and this would be photography. Well, this was back in the day when, well, I wasn't there yet, but if you wanted to take a picture, you had to have a camera, and you had to put film in it, and you would take the pictures, and then you had to take them somewhere and get developed, and it would take like forever, and then you would go and pay and get these pictures, and it was real exciting when you when you got them, because it's like, oh, you know, pictures are here, and looking at them, it was fun, and anyway, if you knew about photography as much as Ian did, or you had the money and the room to do this, you could build your own darkroom and develop your own film, and this is what he did, and back then, all the pictures were black and white, I think, anyway. And this would start his desire to record everything in pictures. And again, this will become very important. He did go home to visit his old family, the Sloans. And one weekend, this was while he was back in Glasgow, he was in an apartment with three or four girls. They were playing records and drinking. Of course, they're drinking. He goes into a bedroom with a girl and then... Next thing he knew, he wakes up in a jail cell. He's got a swollen cheek, and he's like, what the fuck? You know, didn't know what happened to him, what he'd done. So he asked, and they said, well, you've been arrested for fighting in the street. He had no recollection of this. He was given a small fine, and that was the end of it. So now is the start of another, this will be another major event in his life. He's back in Manchester, and he's at work. Oh, his stepdad, Patrick, was nice enough to get him a job at something called the Smithfield Market. And I'm assuming this is like where they sell food. Well, anyway, one day there's a truck driver. Well, they call them lorries there. So a lorry driver told him that there's a sack of lead seals in the warehouse. And he said, will you do me a favor and put them onto my truck because I want to sell them for scrap. So Ian's like, sure, you know. What he didn't know was that he was stealing them by doing this. So 
the truck driver takes his truck to wherever, and the police find him, and they note the name of the market on the truck. To make a long story short, they trace it back to Ian. So later that day, two detectives come and take Ian in for questioning. He had to stay overnight in the cell, and he was really, really mad. Well, why was he so mad? His mother came to the police station, probably to get him out, and she, remember, he's going by the name Ian Brady because he thinks he's being sly and nobody's going to find out his criminal record. Well, his mother gave the police his real name or his older name, and they found out his record. So he's all mad at his mom for doing this. And the next day he goes to court. He pled guilty thinking he's just going to be fine, like this is no big deal, you know. The truck driver got a fine because he has a family. But because they know who he is, they know he has a criminal record. Ian was held in custody until the next quarter sessions. And he's like, well, okay, when is that? And they're like, well, three months. He's like, what? So he's really upset and understandably that the truck driver whose idea it was to steal this thing in the first place gets a fine and Ian is stuck in jail for three months. So he's taken to Strangeways Prison. It's now called Her Majesty's Prison Manchester. It used to be called Strangeways. It's a high-security men's prison, and it's known for a tall ventilation tower on it. It looks like a castle, and you can see it like from all over. That's how tall it is, and it's, it's like a local landmark. And that used to be where they hung people, prisoners, until 1964 when England abolished, or the UK abolished the death penalty. So he decides, well, while I'm here, I might as well make the most of my time here and educate myself. And that he did. He taught himself how to be a better criminal when he got up. He made all kinds of friends. And you know him, he doesn't make friends just to make friends. He always has a an ulterior motive. So he remembered everybody's name, and he even wrote them down in a notebook. And he's thinking, okay, when I get out, this dude can pick safes or crack safes or whatever. This one here is a fence, and this one does that. And he studied accounting. He thought that that would be a good trade, I guess, or, or like a job to have, and also took a tool-making class. And he said that later on, he thought of the lives that would have been saved if this judge had been more lenient. In other words, he blames this time in the jail for becoming a hardened criminal and committing the murders. But it looked like he was kind of on his way to be a career criminal anyway. In fact, that's actually what he aspired to be. And you know how psychopaths are. Everything's always somebody else's fault. So he finally goes to court, and he's sentenced to two years in a borstal. And that's like a training school for bad kids. And he said of this, the judge who sent there, quote, He was of no consequence now. The reckoning had already begun, end quote. He turned 17, and he said he, quote, vowed vengeance in that I would never again take risks for anything trivial, end quote. And he added, I said to myself that if they wanted me to be a criminal, I'll be a proper one. So now he's made up his mind. He's going to be a proper criminal. 
he studied for it. Then he's moved to something called Latchmere House. And in his free time, which you probably have a lot of in jail, he read. And he said, quote, I was exhilarated by the acquisition of knowledge and intoxicated by its latent power. I danced a jig to celebrate whenever I discovered something that resonated with my imagination or plans, end quote. I'd like to see him dance a jig, really. I, I don't think he actually did, but it sure would be funny if he did. But I think that was just a figure of speech. But again, the same theme here. The word power. Note that he keeps using that. That's not a coincidence. He wants to learn everything he can. He gets excited. This particular sentence, I think, is telling. When I discovered something that resonated with my imagination or plans, and remember how I told you that, he would use different authors, different things that they said, quotes that they made, and ideas that they had to justify his behavior. Well, Dostoevsky said this. Well, yeah, okay, he did, but that was a fiction book. It's like he didn't seem to grasp that concept, or else he just didn't care. Then he went to something called Hatfield Borstel in Yorkshire. This was an ex-army camp. This is kind of funny. He worked in the kitchen, and just as an interesting aside, when I worked, you know, when I was a probation officer, when I had to go see people in the jail, when I wrote pre-sentences, I had to get there like all the time. Most of the inmates there had a job, and the best place to work, everybody wanted to work in the kitchen. I'm not real sure why. I think maybe a combination of they had the most freedom. Maybe they got to eat like extra food, and it probably paid more than the other jobs. It's probably like a combination of that, but this could be another thing here. In the kitchen, and I'm not real familiar with kitchens. I know that you cook in them, and they have stuff like pots and pans and ingredients that you can make shit. Well, Ian figured out that with all the pots and pans and ingredients in his kitchen, he could make hooch. Do you know what hooch is? It's jail-made booze. I don't know how exactly you make it, but, I mean, he is very intelligent. He figured this out really fast, and he sold it. And he was making so much money from this that I don't know how he got away with it. So then he starts another enterprise. Remember, he's in jail. He starts running gambling books on horses and dog races. Again, I have no idea how he managed this, but he did. And he said, quote, I was motivated more by the thrill and challenge than the profits, end quote. So one time they took all the inmates on what they called a camp holiday. And they, they go to this town and they're like the guards. They're like, okay, whatever you do, don't go into the pub. So where do you think they go? Duh. They go in the pub, of course. So Ian comes back all drunk and Apparently, he didn't remember this, but apparently he fought with a staff member. And so they're like, okay, you're going back to Hall Prison. That's the harder place to be at, or the stricter place. When he was 18, according to him, another major event occurred, and he would discover his favorite author, Dostoevsky. And he said, quote, the great paradox in all of this is that Dostoevsky created two the most vivid and memorable characters in all literature, 
both of whom were driven by the demonic, end quote. And that would be Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment and Stav Rogon in The Devils. I've never heard of that book. I actually have Crime and Punishment. It's in my pile of 570 other books that I haven't read yet. But um, that is considered one of like the favorite classics of people or, you know, one of the best classics of all time or whatever. And j- just uh, real brief, in case you don't know what it's about, this is important. The main character in Crime and Punishment is a dude named, Russian dude, of course, named Raskolnikov. He kills an old woman who is a loan shark, and then he has to kill her sister too because she interrupts and she sees it, and then he stole money. So he's thinking about what he did, and he realizes that he didn't do this for the money, but that the crimes were, pretend there's a blackboard and I'm writing this because it's really, really important. The crimes were existential tests of personal will. Got that? Really important. Existential tests of personal will. Later on, he would refer to the murders he did as existential exercises. He claimed that he killed other people, but he would never say who or where. Did he? I don't know. We know he lies, so we don't really know. But he he called these other murders, not the Moore's murders, but other people he supposedly killed. He referred to them as happenings. And interestingly, Dostoevsky wrote that the worst conceivable crime was against children. And I think that's significant. He was released in November of 1957 at age 19. So he's supposed to see a probation officer and he goes there for his initial interview is what we called it. And the PO arranged job interviews for Ian. And Ian wasn't interested in what he called a dead-end job. And this is going to be another recurring theme of his. He has no interest in like a typical nine-to-five everyday job that's um, like beneath him. What he wants to do is be a criminal, like a professional criminal. And he even says that his ideal job is to be a paid hitman. So not real grounded in reality. The PO is getting irritated because Ian is pissing around and he's not finding a job. But what he would do with all his free time, because he wasn't looking for a job and he wasn't working, he spent his days watching money being transported from banks to factories. He studied the routes and the times, and the police patrol, possible getaway routes. And I think you could kind of figure out what he's thinking of doing, which should be ro- a robbery. During the night, he would watch the use of the night safes outside of banks. You know how they have those, like, uh, safe deposit things outside of a bank that if you work at a store, you take the money and you put it in this thing. On Saturdays, he would watch... And I never heard of this, but it's it's called an electric and gas showroom. And apparently it's just like an office where people go and pay their electric and gas bills because he knows there's money there. And he's thinking, you know, he said, quote, I was always on the lookout for the Holy Grail, 
the one big job which would free me of the chore of working for a living, end quote. So remember, he has this notebook with all these contacts he's made in jail, and he does hook up with a couple of these dudes, and they do what's called a money snatch. And I think that's like a mugging, you know, like somebody's walking down the street and, and you steal their purse or whatever. But just as an aside, one of the big myths about Ian is that he was obsessed with Hitler and Nazis. And that's actually not true. He told Alan Gately, that's the dude that wrote what's like the best book on him. He said that he admired Hitler's passionate conviction. Like there were things about him as a politician that he admired. Probably the way people blindly follow him and how Hitler manipulated people, but that he didn't have any like obsession with him or you know what um, a lot of people would think. In fact, people would send him, when he was in prison, people would send him books on Nazis and Nazism, and he didn't even read them. And this is very fascinating, this this statement that he made to Alan Keatley. And we'll talk about this later in psychology, but I just want you to keep this in mind that he said this. He said that he was being used as a national folk devil on which people projected their guilt for their own fascination or obsession with Hitler and Nazism. So keep that in mind. In 1958, he finally got a job in a gas works as a steel erector. And he hated this because it was boring and cold, and he was laid off after a few weeks. In March of 1958, he moved to 18 Westmoreland Street, and he finds another job in April. He's a bottle washer in Boddington's Brewery. Again, sounds really horrible, but he liked this job because the employees were allowed to have free beer. And this is literally like having an alcoholic in charge of a bar. In June, he got fined by the police for, for being drunk and disorderly. Imagine that. In October, he was laid off from this job. So he's looking in the paper for a job, and one catches his eye, and it's called Millward's Merchandise Limited in Gordon. And this is a chemical and oil company, and... The boss is named Tom Craig. He significantly is also from Scotland. So Ian goes for an interview, and Tom was a nice guy, and he knows Ian's a fellow Scotsman, and he knows he has a record, and he's like, well, you know, I believe in giving people second chances. So he's like, you can have a job. And Ian started working on February 16th of 1959. He worked in the stock control department. And what he did mainly was dictate orders and letters. And he would be here for the rest of his life that he was free. So while he was working at Millward, he was still doing these robberies on the side with his gang of friends that he'd met in jail. Sometimes they would rob railroad cars, which were full of cigarettes and booze. And he had this thing about guns. He was always looking for guns and bullets. He especially wanted a shotgun. And remember, this is England. Guns were hard to get. So there was a guy that he worked with named George. He was the warehouse foreman. And he was a member of a rifle club. 
So Ian got friendly with him. And we know that he doesn't make friends with somebody unless they can serve some purpose to him. So he's asking him about this gun club. And George said, well, you have to apply. You have to have a sponsor. And you have to have a clean record. So Ian thinks, well, you know, so much for me. With the all the money he was making from these robberies, he traded himself to a motorbike, a fancy camera, a big tape recorder, which is going to be a big player in this story later, a radio, and clothes. He was a real fancy dresser. He would wear, uh, like, vests and ties and have his shoes real shiny and his hair, like, oily and slick and... Well, we already know he writes and talks pretentiously, but I guess pretentiously, or he's one of those people that's like, I would call self-important or, or a snob. That's what he was, was a snob. And he talked like that at work. So this is where he meets Myra at Millward's. So we're going to break off here. And next episode, we're going to go over Myra, meet her. And hers won't be nearly as long because I don't have as much information on her. She's not as talkative as Ian. And depending on how much time we have, we'll get into when they met. Well, we know when they met or where they met and like how they met their relationship. So probably for part two, we're going to meet Myra and talk about their relationship. So I will see you next time. Class dismissed.